You know what time it is. How it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Sleepers awake. This is especially apt for the 8 o'clock service, of course. (laughs) But it's more than that. You may know the great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor's 1955 short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's one of my favorites. And it's actually one of the best illustrations I know of what St. Paul means by this. What it means and what it sometimes takes to wake from sleep in the way that Scripture is getting at today. The story's central character is a prim and proper church-going Georgia grandmother whose sense of her own moral rectitude is matched only by her corresponding sense that the rest of the world is very much in need of the good instruction and moral example that she imagines she's so well equipped to provide. The first half of the story consists largely of the grandmother irritating her son and his family with a constant stream of advice for their moral improvement, dispensed as she perches in the back seat of the family car while they're driving to Florida for a vacation. You can imagine it. But O'Connor masterfully shows that the grandmother in reality is far from morally enlightened. She's a white woman in Georgia in 1955 who's apparently ignorant of the injustices in which African Americans in Georgia of that time often lived, with a kind of romantic moonlight and magnolias vision of the Old South that papered over the grave sins of the white ruling class. You get a picture in just a few short pages that the grandmother is the kind of person who's so sure of her own righteousness that she can't actually see the world that's right in front of her eyes. She's made herself incapable of seeing her own moral ignorance and culpability. She's the kind of person, as O'Connor tells the story, who can whiz past a tumble-down shack by the side of the road with a black child in the doorway and see it as nothing more than a picturesque country scene without any sense of why the child might have to live in that shack or what it might be like to live that way. Well, the grandmother convinces her son to turn off from the highway to go and see this grand old plantation house that she remembered fondly from some dance when she was a girl. But it becomes clear after a few miles of driving down a dirt road that she'd been wrong about where the house was. It was actually in Tennessee, not in Georgia. But she's too proud to admit her mistake. And they hit a washout and they flip over into a ditch. They get out of the now useless car And they happened upon a group of men, which could be helpful, except that they are led by someone she recognizes from the newspaper, an escaped convict and murderer called the Misfit. Foolishly, she blurts out for all to hear that she knows who he is, and that, of course, spells the beginning of the end for the grandmother and her family. The Misfit's men proceed to lead off her son, his wife, and their children into the woods and shoot them. Finally, it's just the grandmother who's left. Even now, she's still not able to see the world in front of her eyes. 
She never asked her family to forgive her for leading them to doom and death. She keeps on trying to give the misfit moral and religious instruction, but nothing she says gets through. He doesn't want any. At the story's very end, her sight starts to clear. She begins to wake up. She realizes, finally, that her son and her family are dead. And she truly mourns for what she's lost. For the relationship that she could have had but never really did have because of how she couldn't ever see the world six inches past her own nose. She realizes that this is the end for her too. And she somehow looks at the misfit and sees in him the little boy that she just lost. And she says to him, Why? You're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reaches out and touches him on the shoulder. And the misfit springs back as if a snake had bitten him and shoots her three times through the chest. She would have been a good woman, the misfit says, if there had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. strange story. It's an old tradition of the church to preach about death, the first Sunday of Advent, today. Not because death itself is good news, but because preaching about it reminds us that time is short and the hour is hastening on. Sam Wells, former dean of Duke Chapel, makes it a habit to write his own obituary every year. You've heard me tell you this before. It sounds a bit morbid, but it's a way of taking the reality of death seriously. Life is shorter than we think. So how am I spending it? How will I be remembered? Am I chasing around after things that in the end don't really matter? Have I put off for another year what God is calling me to do? Am I living for something greater than myself? Am I actually living? Or am I anesthetizing myself with distraction and addiction? What kind of person have I become? Have I reconciled with the people that matter most to me? Have I asked forgiveness for what I've done wrong? When they write the book on me, what will it say? Am I ready to meet God? Maybe I should have warned you that this was the kind of worship service you were getting into today. Everyone else is turning up the jingle bells now after a weekend of turkey and football. And here we are, you'll see this in, you would see this in the 1015 service, marching around asking God to deliver us from sin, the devil, damnation, Blindness of heart, pride, hypocrisy, oppression, violence, and all the rest in the great litany. Praying about death and praying that we won't die suddenly and unprepared. Sleepers awake? After all of that turkey and mashed potatoes, can't we at least have an end? What's all of this about death and judgment? Can't we have a nice sermon about God's love? I wonder... I wonder what you would say if I told you that this actually is a sermon about God's love. 
Do you see a friend or a loved one making destructive choices and turning into the kind of person they shouldn't be? Is it love to leave them alone? No, of course not. Love is brave enough to speak the truth, to try to hold a mirror in front of their eyes, to ask them if they can see where they're headed and who they're becoming and if they really want to do that with their lives. Scripture asks us, as the first Sunday of Advent does, to see that life is short. What are we living for? Can we see who we are and who we've become? Can we see the world six inches past our own nose? Are we ready to meet God? Are we awake or are we asleep? I should be clear about something. St. Paul calls death elsewhere the last enemy to be defeated. Death is not a good thing in and of itself. But it does seem like the God who loves us more than life itself uses death to try to wake us up from our slumber, to shake us up like the grandmother in O'Connor's story, and open our eyes to the reality of the mess we've gotten ourselves into and the life that really is life. How many people there are who've come near to death for the first time and realized all of a sudden how precious every day is, how so much of what we think matters really doesn't, how much we've made a mess of things, or how foolish we are to hold on to some grudge, and how we may not have many more chances to change our lives. The denial of death can seem like the kind and merciful path, but it's only the false kindness of avoidance and distraction. The denial of God's judgment, which our collect speaks of this morning, can seem like a kind and tolerant approach, but it's only the false and blinkered kindness of euthanized sleep. As this morning's collect says, now in the time of this mortal life, now is the time to cast aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, so that in the last day, when Christ comes again to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. I think that the impulse to deny and avoid death and judgment comes from the mistaken assumption, either that there's nothing after death except the silence of the grave, or that God's judgment is a kind of impossible judgmental standard that we could never live up to. If that's what death is, then why not avoid it just, just as long as we can? If that's what judgment means, then why not imagine that well, all dogs go to heaven and God's far too nice to judge anyone? Why not just say that all of this old-fashioned stuff about death and judgment is better left in the past where it belongs? Well, if I didn't have to preach... What Jesus says today, I'd be tempted to do that myself. Right? I'd like to avoid it. But I do have to preach Jesus. And Jesus tells us this morning that he will return to be our judge.
You and I will meet him, as the hymn says, just as we are without one plea, except that Jesus died for me. About that day and hour, no one knows. It could be 50 or 20 or 10 years from now, or it could be today. Therefore, we must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. May it not be said of you and me. He would have been a good person if there had been someone there to shoot him every minute of his life. May each of us, by God's grace, lay aside the works of darkness and live in the light right now, today, with all the time of this mortal life that we have left. Let us above all put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who both judged and so loved the world on the cross, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray you to set your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls, now and in the hour of our death. Give mercy and grace to the living, pardon and rest to the dead, to your holy church peace and concord, and to us sinners everlasting life and glory. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign, one God, now and forever.